0: Thank you for downloading this sermon from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website at www.trinityspartanburg.com. Let's stand for the reading of God's Word. This is First Timothy chapter 6, verses 13 through 16. This is the Word of the Lord. It is eternally true. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things, and of Christ Jesus who testified the good confession before Pontius Pilate, that you keep the commandment without stain or reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will bring about at the proper time, he who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who alone possesses immortality and dwells in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your word. Father, we ask that you would give us your spirit, that we might know your wisdom, that we might have the light that is found in you. Father, I pray that you would make us like little children, Father, ready to receive your word, humble in spirit. Father, that we would be strengthened, that we would be encouraged, that we would be rebuked, trained in righteousness. Lord, I pray that you would guide and bless every one of our thoughts and meditations. May they be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Be seated. So the Apostle Paul is coming to the end of his first letter to Pastor Timothy. Uh, In chapter 6 now, he is exhorting Timothy to pursue righteousness, to fight the good fight of faith, uh, to exert himself by faith, to make progress in righteousness. Before the apostle turns back to rebuke the rich, in in the 17th and 18th, 19th verse, he gives one final charge to Timothy. A charge begins with invoking the very presence of God. I charge you in the presence of God. It's as if Paul is taking taking up what he's saying, uh, he's taking it up a notch. Right? This is getting serious. Now, that what he said to Timothy previous not that, you know, what he said previously isn't serious, all of it is very serious um it's all inspired but this has special emphasis this is not the, the first time in this letter that paul has used this solemn sort of language in chapter 5 we read i solemnly charge you in the presence of god and of jesus christ and of his chosen angels to maintain these principles without bias doing nothing in a spirit of partiality um So what is the purpose of of this this calling on the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and previously of of even his chosen angels? It's to call upon God as as a witness to the command that the apostle is giving to Timothy. It is to bind the conscience of the one who commanded by God's very own word. The apostle, so, so he's, 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 um, he is calling on God to witness this command that he's giving to, the, to Pastor Timothy. And Timothy is to feel the weight of that. He is to uh, solemn, solemnly feel the weight of that. The apostle then goes on and says, I charge you in the presence of God, who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus. Just as he did before in chapter 5, he makes the charge calling upon the presence of both the Father and the Son. In this instance, he does not also call upon those elect angels. Both um, Both the Father and the Son are then described by Paul. The Father, God, is said to give life to all things. And then... Jesus is said to have testified the good confession before Pontius Pilate. Why bring those particular things to light? Why describe God in in that manner? That the Father gives life to all things, and Jesus testified before uh, this man, Pontius Pilate. Hannah, in her prayer, says this. The Lord kills and the Lord makes alive. The Lord kills and makes alive. It's 1 Samuel 2.6. It is, and we know from Scripture that God is the one who knit us together in our mother's wombs, who gave us our very being, souls, and bodies. It is He who has numbered our days, who knows our birth and our deaths. It's He who that makes us alive in a number in a In another way, too, and that is he gives us new birth, he gives us new life, he gives us regeneration. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. It's Ephesians 2. It is his electing love that gave us true life, life as it was meant to be in communion with God. This life-giving Father is the one whose presence the Apostle is calling on for the solemnity of his charge. Then Jesus is described as the one who testified the good confession before Pontius Pilate. Outside of the Gospels and Acts, this is the only place where Pontius Pilate is mentioned, uh, the man who presided over the mock trial of our Savior, the man who who ordered his very execution. Jesus Christ, before that man, bore witness. Bore witness to what? He bore witness to the fact that he, Jesus, was indeed the King of kings. He was the King of Jews. Now, Jesus stood before the governor, and that's Pilate. This is in Matthew 27. And the governor questioned him, saying, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus said to him, It is as you say. What was significant about that confession? It, it provided the basis for the coalition among Pilate and the religious leaders and the crowd, and thus the ground for the crucifixion of Jesus. It it bound together all the enemies of God. Look, he's he's claimed to be the king of the Jews. And thus it was the grounds for Jesus' crucifixion. Therefore, I think think what the apostle is saying to Timothy is this. God the Father gives life, and Jesus Christ, by his confession, willingly gave up his life. He's He's reminding Timothy that His life came from the Father, and his death, which may come by confessing the faith before others, is known to God in the same way that Christ's death was known and foreordained by the Father. So, I mean, he's really trying to, though this is a solemn oath, he's he's very much trying to encourage Timothy. Um, This language is meant to call upon God the Father and God the Son to this charge, but it's also meant to encourage Timothy in his task. God has given you life, and you are following the path of his Son, suffering and dying for the sake of the kingdom and of the sheep. So what's the specific command that the apostle charges Timothy with keeping? He says, keep the commandment without stain or reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the next question is, what is the commandment? Why is it singular and not the plural commandments, which would point to the moral law? Uh, Well, here are the options. It could mean this. The commandment could mean that the commandment given at Timothy's ordination, Remember what Paul wrote back in chapter 4 about that ordination. He said, Do not neglect the spiritual gift within you, which was bestowed on you through prophetic utterance with the laying on of hands by the presbytery. Take pains with these things. Be absorbed in them so that your progress will be evident to all. So Paul could be referring to that, that gift that he was given in his ordination. The commandment could mean, secondly, the exhortation given just before in verses 11 to 12, the flee and pursue, the, the fight, the good fight um, passage. So it could mean that. Third, it could mean the, the commandment could mean the commandment to persevere in his ministry. 4.16 says, pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. Persevere in these things. For as you do this, you will ensure salvation both for yourself and for those who hear you. So he could just be saying, that's the, the main task you have. It's the commandment, persevere. Um, the commandment could also mean, fourthly, the commandment of the whole letter written to him. Everything that's written in this letter, keep the commandment, this, this letter I've given to you. Fifth, it could the commandment could mean the commandment found in the letter to... to in regard to the ministry of the gospel and the government of the church, since this letter is focused on in, on organizing the church, it could be that commandment to put the church in order. Six, the commandment could mean everything committed to Timothy, as mentioned ahead in verse 20. O oh, Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to you. Um, this This task of being an apostolic delegate. Seventh, the commandment could mean the whole gospel as a way of life, the commandment, the commandment to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. Whenever the apostle Paul uses the singular commandment elsewhere, which is not very often, he usually uses it in connection with one of the Ten Commandments. It's combined at that point. For example, in Romans 7, 8 through 13, where he speaks of the Tenth Commandment, not to covet. right? But, but that is not happening in this passage. He doesn't mention a specific commandment. In 2 Peter, so going outside of Paul to another New Testament writer, in 2 Peter there is a use of the singular commandment that may help us. This is from 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 20 and 21. For if, after they have escaped the defilements of the world by the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and are overcome, the last state has become worse than the first. For it would be better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn away from the holy commandment handed on to them. And so there, Peter is using the singular commandment in a parallel way in that that, um, verse with the way of righteousness. In other words, the commandment is a way of speaking of the whole of the Christian life, one of obedience to the commands of God so Paul often summarizes the whole of the Christian life with these singular words. He talks about the good deposit. He talks about the fact that he has kept the faith, right? And now he mentions the commandment to Timothy. So I think in saying commandment, he's not pointing toward some one specific command in this letter or in his ordination, or anything other than the whole of the gospel and the obligation he has as a Christian and as a minister of the word to walk in a manner worthy of his Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The commandment is the commandment that Jesus makes of the apostles. It's basically this, follow me. Follow me. The commandment. So the apostle Paul is... is sort of pulling back at this point and telling Timothy to persevere in the faith. Keep the faith. Persevere in the faith. What Timothy had known, remember Timothy was converted by the ministry of his mother and grandmother, right? He's known the scriptures since he was a youth. And so what Timothy had known since he was a boy, he was to continue in no matter what difficulties he would face in the ministry. That's what Paul is saying to him. No matter what difficulties you face, keep the faith. He is to follow Jesus Christ in a particular manner. Paul charges him, keep the commandment without stain or reproach. In the book of Jeremiah, we read that the sin of the people came before God as a stain. Although you wash yourself with lye and use much soap, the stain of your iniquity is before me, declares the Lord God. Jeremiah 2.22. I also read earlier from 2 Peter where he calls sin defiling. Sin is defiling. That, that, um, that too is a sort of stain, defilement. It's something that attaches to you. Sin stains us. It takes what God has has changed to be holy, right? Which is His people, and smears it with filth. It's it, it's our bodies, our thoughts, our actions. It is so easy, you know. You think of it; it's so easy to stain a new shirt. It 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 happens in a moment. Sometimes we don't even realize we've stained our shirt, especially if we're eating Italian and and um, or I, Italian, um, and it. And yet it takes a whole ton of effort to get it out. And sometimes you can't get the stain out, right? If you catch it quick, maybe you can. But um, it takes much effort to get the shirt clean. I mean, how much more so sin that defiles and stains us? It took Christ's sacrifice. It took the death of the Son of God in order to make us unstained and pure. And it takes... Just moments for us to disregard that precious sacrifice and defile ourselves by sin. The Apostle Paul charges Timothy to keep the faith without stain, without that defilement. He is also to keep the commandment to keep the faith without reproach. Others should be able to look upon Timothy and not find fault with his faith um that is another effect of our sin a bad witness causes the faith to be reproached to be disgraced when someone looks to us to see what it means to be a christian and they see instead discontentment they see sadness they see worldliness they're likely to come away with a a a low view or even just a disgust a hatred of christianity Um, Timothy is exhorted by Paul not to keep the commandment, the way of life, that way. Live by faith. Seek for holiness. Set a good example. Rejoice in Jesus Christ. Rest in him. If not, your living is going to lead to reproach. Reproach. How longer do we live in such a way? Paul says... Um, How long is Timothy to live in such a way, Paul says, until the appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ? All Christians are to pursue holiness, to honor God through our witness and our actions, all through their lives, right up until the time Jesus comes again to judge once and for all the living and the dead. When will Jesus return? Uh, No answers here for you prognosticators. At the proper time. <laughs> when will Jesus return? At the proper time. That's rather vague, isn't it? Yep, that's about all we know about that time. It'll be the right time. It'll be the right time when Jesus comes back to judge the living and the dead. At the proper time. That's all Paul says about it here. And then the passage finishes with the wonderful, this wonderful song of praise to God, a description of his glory. Paul often breaks out. I love it when you're reading through his letters and he's been pounding you with solid doctrine, then all of a sudden he'll just burst out in this, this praise of God. And he, he he does that again here. He he breaks out into this doxology. One example of that, Romans eleven thirty three through 36. I mean, 9, 10, and 11 has been dealing with election. has been dealing with the position of the, the Jews and the covenant. And then at the end of it, he says, oh, the depth of the riches both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has become his counselor? Who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him again? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Right. So Paul... The, the, the doctrine for him is not just a, an activity of the mind. It's an activity also of the heart. right? And so he, he bursts out in these thanksgivings and praises, even though he's studying what, what, what uh, even the canons of Dort say that we should be careful about, which is the doctrine of election. Right? And so he's praising God. His theology leads to Doxology. The Apostle Paul loves God. He loves God. His mind wanders away into a flood of gratitude and just wonder at God's glory and grace. So here in this letter where he is exhorting a young pastor, Paul again he gets distracted, right, in a sense by God's goodness. He describes the, God this way, he who is the blessed and only sovereign, the king of kings and lord of lords, who alone possesses immortality and dwells in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. And another one of those, amen. Right now, it is not just the apostle Paul getting distracted in a flood of emotion. The statement is also a confrontation with with the competing religions of the day. Um, To call Jesus the only sovereign, the king of kings and lord of lords, is to do what? It's to offend all the rulers of the Roman Empire who claimed they were supreme deities. And so this is a confession of faith within this culture, right? Right? Paul says, you know, not so. They are not deities. There is only one sovereign. And he reigns supreme over all the kings of the earth and all the lords of the earth. This truth would become the reason so many Christians would be killed by the Roman Empire for being what they called atheists. Right? Proclaiming Jesus as king is to not... Proclaim the emperor's king, and so Christians were killed as atheists, ironically. They would not bow the knee to Caesar because to do so was to blaspheme and it was to betray Jesus Christ. Secondly, the apostle says that Jesus, um, that God alone possesses immortality, he possesses it by his very own nature. He has life. In himself, right? Not given to him like our immortality is given to us. He was and is and always will be. Mankind is not immortal in that sense, but is created and has derived his being from God. The Greeks thought that there was some sort of spark of immortality in man, but we know that that is not true from Scripture. We have been created. We have been given our life. We derive immortality from his blessing. But God has life in himself. It's hard for us to even conceive of that. Having always been being and always being. Right, we all have have birthdays. We all have beginnings and ends. Right, we come and go. We we um, we're, we come from the dust and we return to the dust. But God is. God is. And so Paul now has, in this short doxology, has taken a stick both to Roman rulers and Greek philosophers. A little doxology, but it packs a punch against the idols of the day. Four characteristics of God are brought out in the doxology. Listen to this. God is invincible. God is immortal. God is inaccessible. And God is invisible. Invincible, immortal, inaccessible, invisible. Inaccessible, I would say, in the sense that sin and sinners cannot exist in his presence. Inaccessible in that sense. One commentator draws back and makes this observation. And here is the glory of the Father, whose wisdom is not like ours at all. God's own word became a man. The invincible God was defeated and beaten. The immortal God was crucified and died. The God who cannot be approached took on flesh and approached us. And the God who is invisible was made visible to the eyes. As Jesus said, if you have seen Christ, you have seen the Father. So what glory, right? What glory, dear brothers and sisters? Have you stopped to think about the glory that is revealed to us in Jesus Christ? Have you meditated on the very joy you should have in being able to approach The unapproachable God, have you thought about the fact that you have not come to a mountain that can be touched, and to a blazing fire, and to darkness, and gloom, and whirlwind, and to the blast of the trumpet, and the sound of words, which sound was such that those who heard begged that no further word be spoken to them. But you have come to Mount Zion, and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to myriads of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. Have you stopped to consider the glory that is yours through the work, the mediatorial work of Jesus Christ, of the Son of God? God is invincible, and while you were his enemy, Christ died for you, and he has softened towards you. Right? He has been propitiated. He is invincible, and Jesus has propitiated him. God is immortal, and yet God sent his Son at the fullness of time to die for you. God is inaccessible, but you have been brought near by the blood of Jesus Christ. God is invisible, but those who have seen Christ have seen the Father. I mean, this, dear brothers and sisters, is the importance of Jesus Christ. This is the necessity of of Jesus Christ. Without the Son and his work to propitiate the Father and to mediate for you and me, we would simply be approaching a God who would be justified and right to condemn us to an eternity away from his benevolent presence. He would be required to but god being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us even when we were dead in our transgressions made us alive together with christ you need jesus christ as or you or you approach an unapproachable god if you do not see the necessity of faith in Jesus Christ, if you do not understand the need you have of his righteousness, if you do not heed the Father's demand that you come to him through his Son, you will be consumed by the unmitigated, the unfiltered wrath of an invincible, unapproachable, sovereign, invisible God. He will not extend his scepter to you so that you may stand in his presence. But Jesus is offered to you in the gospel. He says, come to me and find rest for your soul. Faith in Jesus Christ as the sacrifice for your sins brings you right into the presence of God without any fear of punishment. Faith in Jesus Christ places all your sins upon him, and the cross he bore becomes the punishment you earned and deserved. Find rest for your souls in Jesus Christ. Escape that wrath that is coming by believing in him. I want to close by sharing with you a bit of Calvin's meditation on this. His words were helpful to me. Listen to this. And Calvin said, "And when we have this discretion and wisdom in us to give our Lord Jesus Christ the honor that belongs to him, then we shall be bridled howsoever the world goes. We shall not envy the worldlings for all their pleasures and honors and happiness which they dream of, and think they are half gods, and make themselves drunk and forget themselves, and suppose they are mortal men no more yet, nor yet even creatures. For this is the matter in which they dare so boldly to be at defiance with God. So then, not one jot of this shall make us astonished. And why so? We shall always be resolved in this doctrine. The Son of God has his kingdom alone. There is no one but him. Truly it appears now to our eyes. We comprehend it, Not according to our natural senses, but that which cannot be seen, we must behold by faith. And in the meantime, we must stand resolved that in the end, God will show us that he alone is emperor, not only of heaven, but also of earth, and that he has all in his hands. And that whatsoever at this day seems to be glorious is nothing but smoke. They are things that perish and come to an end. And therefore, since this is so, let us go on to serve God. Let us aspire to this inheritance that is promised to us, and we shall not be deceived in our hope. And though the worldlings persuade themselves nowadays that they are happy and mock at us as though we are fools and idiots, yet in the end God will show that he has not called us to his service to deceive us but he wants to make us partakers of that glory which he has given to our lord jesus christ and though it is not present to us this day it shall be made open unto us in convenient time amen amen let's pray Our Father, we glorify your holy name. Forgive us, Father, for the the weak thoughts that we have had of you, the way that we have diminished your glory, the way that we have forgotten to be in awe of you and have been in awe of such foolishness and such worldliness. Father, forgive us for for the the distractedness of our thinking when it comes to your glory. Father, I pray that our minds would be filled with your glory, that we would at times, in the midst of other things like the Apostle Paul does, just break out in thanksgiving, break out in doxology. Father, I pray that we would find our satisfaction in you. Father, that we would rest in you. I pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen.